Some of you got to see that during the 15-minute break. I wanted to just put up some of the photos, but uh, just to, to mention and add to what Don was wanting to um, state, in fact, primarily want to say, to give a big thank you to, to Robin and to Leslie for the great work that they did in overseeing the, the Vacation Bible School. I can tell you from all the comments, and I received a ton of photos from brethren. Um, thank you for them. I'm going to create a cloud space where you can up, we can upload all the photos and videos to one location, and, and then we can share it if you want to be able to have some other photos for your personal use. But uh, these pictures, and I, I guess I should have set it to automatically transfer going from one to the next, but these, these photos are absolutely just giving you an... Um, a glimpse of what the week was like. And to Don's point, it was an amazing, wonderful week. Um, some people call uh, Mr. Steve, uh, Rabbi Steve, I like to think of him as Rabbi Richie. I thought he has a nice role. <laughs> there you are. <laughs> and he's just shaking his head. No, but you're Rabbi Richie from now on. You're dubbed. <laughs> uh, fantastic, fantastic week. And so uh, you kind of get one of the Hawaiian angels. Um, so you kind of get a sense of what went on during, during the week. But just a fantastic, fantastic week. I heard the goal is for next week all church members to have some kind of costume the next year. That's a lofty goal, but a wonderful one uh, indeed. So we're going to let the next few slides should be done. But I, I want you to know that if you ever decide that you, know, you have some, some good leadership with good enthusiasm to, um, to make something happen, it can happen. And it just takes us getting behind that, that effort. And so naturally, with a good experience, then we have um, desire for next year. I'm looking forward to it as well. In fact, I felt really, I felt like Tom, I had my inner Tom Cruise going for my one cameo role, <laughs> my one line. <laughs> felt good. <laughs> All right. So, you know, about a month ago, I did a sermon, and it was about um, disarming evil. And there was a latter part of the sermon that I thought just did not give enough time to what I want to talk about. And so I decided to continue that, that theme. But I'm going to admit from the very beginning, this sermon is probably me personally the most difficult. It rubs me the wrong way. It goes against my view on how I see scripture. And so I'm sharing with you that I'm at a crossroads with the presentation I'm actually giving but I'm trying to give you God's word, what God's word actually says, and let the chips fall for you individually as well as for myself. Um, because I believe there are times in which when we believe things, we like to basically find all the Bible passages and saying, here's why I believe what I believe, versus as we try and tell other people, let God's word mold us, right? And so when that happens, that gets scary. And I'm not trying to scare you from a standpoint that you're, you're going to lose your faith or anything like that. That's not what I'm saying, but it's going to challenge your faith practically. And so when it comes to this idea of destroying evil, there's a sense of irony in the title, doesn't it? Destroying evil. It doesn't seem, but yet we're very familiar with it. I like to think that this is just part of our culture when we look at what um, the whole concept of good and evil. And if you've read the bulletin, that's what we're dealing with, a concept of good and evil. And so I want you to consider the way much of the world thinks of when dealing with a subject matter like good and evil. For instance, if we were to take believers' views and non-believers, like Christians and non-Christians, 
let alone just people of the world, but yet we've got worldview perspectives coming into play, right? So um, you take a typical cowboy versus Indian worldly view, first of all. Who would you cheer for? I grew up with my grandfather. He loved watching the old war movies and cowboys and Indian type shows. And we always cheered for the cowboy, right? We're the good guys. Those Indians are the bad guys. Politically incorrect, we can't even watch those shows anymore, but that's what it was. You cheered for the good guys, cowboys. Ah, 1980s, US Olympics, who are you gonna cheer for, US or Russia? Of course, US or anyone, right? But especially not Russia. They're the worst people, should never cheer for the enemy. They're the bad guys. And so again, you got this good guy, bad guy mentality. And then even if we were to look at it from a Christian versus non-Christian standpoint, sometimes because we're from this country, we cheer for the U.S. or even have bad thoughts against those Russians and however they were named. Those Christian non-believer type ways of looking at things may be similar in some areas, but we even have it within the body of Christ, some changes or differences, right? So when we talk about um, capital punishment, there are Christians that believe in capital punishment and believe we can go to like Romans 13, go to 1 Peter, and we can read how capital punishment should be upheld. And then there are other Christians saying, how could you be so unkind and unloving? Why would you ever want capital punishment? Both are Christians, both loving God, both wanting to serve God faithfully, both going to Bible passages to show their view. It could be on self-defense. How do you deal with self-defense? You know, do you let them just run over you and not defend yourself? Or do you let them strike your cheek and give them the other as well? Because there's views on these types of passages, right? Uh, political views, if you go back to the previous point, ethnic, cultural views, all these things, whether they be from a believer standpoint or a non-believer, or even within the body of Christ, you again have different views. And what I'm trying to say is that there's a worldview that each of you have, that I have, that play into part on how we read and interpret Scripture. It, it affects us. So when it comes to this worldly view of good versus evil, the obvious question we need to ask ourselves is, well, what does God have to say about it? And that's the rub, because again, if you're saying, well, let's go to God's word, where do, where do we typically go? But the things that actually we presuppose, that we already believe in, that we're convicted about, and we read those passages, and typically, what we're doing is if we have a leaning toward one side versus the other, we'll negate the other passages that don't support our view, or we'll try and downplay it, or kind of scoot it off to the side, and it's, that's just not the main passage, right? We go to the passage that really supports our view, and it even may be one obscure passage that we build an entire theology around. Brethren, you may not realize it, but you and I, we do it from time to time. We build theology around certain passages. 
this whole concept of good versus evil is one of those areas. And we do it without thinking about it. We just, we don't ever go, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to get a view on what is good versus evil. And then we're going to build my theology. We don't do that. That's not how we study scripture typically, but it happens over time nonetheless. And so when we go to God's word, read the passages and then let it mold you as best as possible, knowing that we have presuppositions, that we have convictions already about one way or the other. And then I'll share with you my personal conviction as well. All right. If we're going to look at what the scriptures have to say, we'll start with the head being Christ himself and look at some of the things that he taught and some of the things that he says. Now, mind you, some can say, well, Mitch, you're preaching in the pulpit. I wouldn't have chose those passages. By all means, after the sermon, email me all the Bible passages about what Christ taught and about what he did. By all means, I'll add those in in the future and saying, here's some other, some other views about good versus evil and how you destroy evil. So if I were to go back to this worldly view and then look at Christ... The worldly view that I was talking about when you have cowboys versus Indians, U.S. versus Russian, all that is, if you were to look at how everyone deals with good and evil, what we do is we cheer the good that kills the evil, right? Whether it's Star Wars, whether it's Superman, that's why I got the, that theme on this here. Whatever the situation is, you want Lex Luthor gone. No more threatening the world. You don't want... From an American nationalistic perspective, you don't want the Russians bombing the United States or any other country for that matter. Sorry for traumatizing your children. Uh, this is the way we view things. We want those bad guys put away from. And we do it by, by eliminating, literally destroying the evil people so that all that's left are good people. Right? That's the picture that we have. Look at what Jesus has. Look at some of these passages of which um, Jesus Christ either taught or, when it's, or deals with his life. So we've read these passages, but let's read them one more time together and let's get some insight into them. So open up to Matthew chapter 5, familiar passage that Jesus gives. And of course, I've heard both sides and, and uh, I still struggle again, even with this passage myself. But Matthew 5, 38. Here's what Jesus taught. He said, here's what you have been taught by your forefathers according to what is read out of the law. You've heard that it was said. So he says, you heard that it was said, verse 38, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Yeah. That's kind of like what, what we want. Justice. You hurt me. I hurt you back. We're even. Call it fair and square. But... I tell you, instead of an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, I want you to resist evil. I tell you not to resist an evil person. I want you to resist evil yourself. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. What? One more time. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, Turn the other to him also. I want to tell you right now, I, wish, I want it to be, this is just metaphor. This is just uh, hyperbole. You know, if someone does something to you, he says, let him do it. If anyone wants to sue you 
and take away your cloak, let him have your cloak also. Or, or, let him have your tunic. Excuse me. He wants to take away your tunic. Let him have your cloak also. He wants to steal your clothing. Give him this as well. Whoever compels you to go a mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. These are things that rub me the wrong way. I don't want to give my other cheek, whether it's metaphorically speaking or literally speaking. What I want to do is practice jujitsu. <laughs> I'm just being honest. Someone hurts me, I want to defend myself. Someone hurts my family, I don't want to defend myself, I want to hurt them. That's the natural fleshly reaction that I have. Okay? Jesus is saying, for however you want to interpret this passage, literally, metaphorically, you still have to deal with it. Here's what it was said, eye for an eye. That's how I want to handle it. Jesus says, not so. I don't want you to handle it eye for an eye. Give them. Okay, so let that sink in. Let it soak for just a little bit. Okay? With that very mindset, we go to our passage like John chapter 3 and verse 16. God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son. Well, who's this world that, that God gave his son to? We're told just two chapters earlier in John chapter 1, Jesus came among his own and his own did not receive him. They hated him when he came in the likeness of flesh. That's the setting. When the scripture tells us God so loved the world, he didn't love a world that loved him. He loved a world that hated him. Okay? So... That's the mindset that you have. Now, with that mindset, go to Ephesians chapter 2. And what Paul does is he writes to Christians who were enemies of God. Look at this passage. Ephesians chapter 2. Let's read from verse 1 and kind of let this uh, soak in with the passage in Matthew 5 as well as John 3. You he made alive, Ephesians 2 verse 1, you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. So you're dead, now you're alive. Think about the whole idea of creation, Genesis chapter 1. That's the picture that is given here. In which you once walk according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. When you were dead, this is how you lived. You lived as one as a son of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. By nature, children that is contrary to God. God who loves and creates. Instead, you were children of that which destroys, children of wrath just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in the trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. While we were dead in the trespass of our sins, while we were enemies of God, he loved us. He overcame 
our hatred of him by dying on the cross so that those who would believe on him would have everlasting life. Let that sink in some more. Because these things, again, are difficult for me thinking, I get this passage. I can get Ephesians chapter 2. I get that from a very generic, sterile standpoint. But when I have to read a passage like Matthew chapter 5 and then read passages like this, it gives me a very different view of how I look at the world that looks at Jesus. You're dying for your enemy. You're allowing your enemy to actually put you to death. Remember when Pilate and Jesus were in conversation and Pilate was like, hey, listen, Jesus, I have the authority to either have you killed or have you pardoned. Jesus says, no, you don't. Mm -mm. You have no such power for me. I give up my life freely. So Jesus is the true one with true power. And he's saying, I'm giving it up, basically. Go back to Romans chapter 5. We read verses 6 through 11. Focus in on verse 8 of the text here now. So Sawyer read for us verses 6 through 11 in Romans chapter 5. Go and read and let this sink in with the previous verses, including Matthew 5. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us. So when you talk about a righteous man willing to die, even a good man willing to die for someone that they would love, how about dying for your enemy? How about allowing your enemy to take your physical life so that his life could be saved if you were to believe on him? That's the kind of sacrifice that was allowed. That's, that's the way God decided to destroy evil. The promise that was given of evil is power. But not the kind of, you don't get power that way, right? But look at our world's philosophers. How do people get power? Through deception. Well, look at all of our leaders around the world. Great godly men. Not really. How do they get to power? through deceit often. So what God is showing us is power unlike the way of the world, unlike the philosophy of the world. It's very different. That is why you can read Matthew chapter 4, Luke chapter 4 on the temptations of Christ. Look at how Satan gain or gives us power and how man takes power. Look at what he was offering to Jesus and Jesus said, no, the game has changed. I'll show you what true power looks like. You're wanting me to use my authority, my ability as the son of God for my personal gain. And what I'm telling you is I look to my father, my heavenly father, and what he wills I do. And he brought me into the wilderness so that I may suffer going along with Brad's theme this morning. And to, and to trust in him what you're offering me is not true power that ultimately destroys what you're offering me so what jesus is showing us is a way of living that is very different than the way of the world including 
Christianity for a number of centuries. The Crusades in the name of Christianity was not Christianity. But many Christians believe it were for many years. They thought that's the way you, you convert the lost. I mean, it'd be like me going to Brad and putting him in a, uh, an arm lock. You will become a Christian. Somehow, many people do that, if not physically, emotionally, mentally. But that's just not the way Jesus taught. Jesus taught us something very powerful, and that is giving up self. Well, did the disciples teach the same thing that Jesus taught? Did the disciples do the same thing that Jesus did? And you're going to see a number of passages that bring this very point out. I mean, if you're a disciple of Christ, what do you do? If you're going to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, what does it practically look like? All right? So we go to other passages. And I want you to follow these passages with me as well. What did they teach? Well, Romans chapter 12. Remember we were told in Romans 12, we, we always read verses 1 and 2. Right? Be living sacrifices. Well, that's good and that's fine as long as my living sacrifices, I deny myself in that I don't sleep in today, I, I go and worship God. I deny myself in that um, I, I'm going to read and study when I'd rather go to the movies. I'm, you know, however, we think of it along those superficial lines. Here's what living this uh, sacrifice life in service to Jehovah looks like practically. So in verse 17... In fact, let me go back up to verse 9 since that's the beginning of the whole paragraph. He says, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligent, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Well, that's what that living sacrifice looks like so far. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation. Continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints given to hospitality. And then he says in verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Sounds like what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Bless and do not curse. He goes on saying in verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another and do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. And then he says, repay no one evil for evil. What he's basically doing is he's quoting Matthew 5. Right? You have heard that it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. He says, repay no one evil for evil. And some would say, well, Mitch, that's two different things. The eye for eye was justice. That was on the law of Moses. Jesus is showing something even beyond the law of Moses right now. The disciples of Jesus are showing, showing something beyond that. He says, have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it's possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Again, I'm telling you, these are things that, that are difficult for me because what I want to do is justify the passage away so I can hold on to my belief. And my belief is... And I still, I still have this belief. I just struggle with these passages. My belief is you defend yourself. And I can go to Bible passages in my head right now to justify that belief. I have other texts in my, in my head that bring that out. 
but I'm having to read these passages that tell me, don't repay evil for evil. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, and, and some other passages like that. Going on, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 7, and then 1 Peter 3, verse 9. So go to 1 Corinthians 6. Just before we, we look at the text about how our bodies are, are temples for the Lord, here's what he says, 1 Corinthians 6. Verse 7, when brother takes brother to court, he says, Therefore, it is already an utter failure for you to go to law against another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Well, because I don't want anyone to run over me. That's why. Paul again says, brethren taking each other to court, why not accept wrong? My children don't want to accept wrong. They probably get it from me. You know, who wants to accept wrong? Paul is saying, why not accept it? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? Brethren, am I the only one that struggles with these passages? Instead of letting someone cheat us, we want what's fair. And we've got the court systems to go through to, to use as a tool to execute fairness and justice. Those are the things that are in our mindset because of the culture that we have. And what I'm saying is that's the reason why there's many within the body of Christ that struggle with these passages. And here's how we handle it. Don't read them. Or if you read them, just read right past it. Don't let it sink in. Don't let it actually shape us. Yet these passages are here nonetheless. 1 Peter chapter 3. Go to this one. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 and 9. Finally, similar to 1 Corinthians 6, similar to Romans 12. Finally, all of you be of one mind. Same message. Having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tenderhearted. Be courteous. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, blessing. In other words, you return evil with blessing. With, re, with reviling, bless them. Pray for them. Knowing that you were called to this. You were called not for fairness or justice from, from the human standpoint of good versus evil. You were called to bless those who harm you. To pray for those who misuse you. That's what you're called to. That you may inherit a blessing, he says. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil. Let his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and, to, and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Okay, so if I'm a good person and someone's done bad to me, the justice way of, of the worldly life is repay evil by like. Here's the struggle. So my child does wrong. I read a passage that says, do not spare the rod, which I have no problem with. My children would attest to it. And then I read passages like this, and it's taking it into a broader context of life. 
And what I want to do is I want to administer the rod of justice. And he's saying, let yourselves be cheated. Give him the other cheek. You see, so what I want to do is I want to fight against these passages and I want to explain away and give my view. And yet, there's so many of these passages that at some point I have to deal with them. So here's how Christians dealt with it. Most of us are familiar with Acts chapter 7 verses 59 and 60. You all remember, right? So, so Stephen is preaching the gospel and in preaching the gospel, he basically calls out these particular Jews who have hatred against Christ and in so doing and condemning them to to um, the guilt of their sins they hate him for it and they start stoning him to death while they're stoning him to death he cries, cries out to the Lord to receive his spirit and as he is in the midst of dying he says Lord or God forgive them of this sin. What? How would you have done that? What would you do, brethren? He didn't run away, which maybe he could, maybe he couldn't because of the crowd. But he was so bold to proclaim God's word, it cost him his life. And he basically followed in the footsteps of, of Jesus. Go on. James chapter, I mean James, Acts chapter 12 with James, right? So Herod starts persecuting the church, has James, whoever this James is, whether it's the brother of John, sons of thunder, or if it's a brother of Jesus, whoever he is, he is beheaded as a Christian. And Herod then seeks for Peter. Could he have not have, have appealed well, maybe, maybe not. The fact that the, the scripture reveals that's what he did. Revelation chapter 2. In fact, go to this passage. This passage we hardly ever read, so let's read it. Um, we always read about the seven churches in Asia and everything. But read about this specific individual, and you get a sense of, of the kind of lives that were being lived, in this case in Pergamos, if I'm not mistaken. Verse 12. To the church in Pergamos write, these things says he who has a sharp two-edged sword. Think of, the, think of the play on words, by the way, because it sounds wrathful. A two-edged sword. And yet, where does this sword come from but the mouth of the word of God, Jesus himself? It's his words that sharply pierce. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name. Did not deny my faith even in the days when these things happened including in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells he was a martyr he allowed his life to be killed for the cause of Christ Brethren, I'm not sure about you, but what I'm getting is I'm painting a picture from scriptures that obviously you can't make them up. You're reading them that gives you a teaching that says, here's how you destroy evil. And it's unlike any weapon we're used to. The weapon I'm used to is I'll beat you up, but I'm the good person. 
But am I any better than the evil person? The only difference is because you agree with me that I'm the good person, you're okay with me beating him up, putting him in his place, beating up the bully, if you will. And yet, we are told that the power of Christ that resided in these individuals that are called faithful gave up their lives. So I'm sharing with you openly, I struggle with these passages. I'm not done with them, but I'm sharing them with you because you have to deal with them too. I'm forcing you to deal with them because I'm giving the sermon. You have to read these passages and you have to come to a conclusion because it's going to shape and mold the way you continue to walk with Christ in the way you currently have already believed or have your belief challenged and possibly change the way you walk with the Lord and how you deal with people in this world. I'm going to summarize with this. I know it's a little bit longer typical than the sermons I give in the past, but I wanted to deal with this, and I just didn't have enough time in that previous sermon. When Jesus deals with evil, it is unlike any which way, because he deals with evil through love. And so what love does is it creates life. It builds up. It's very different. He doesn't deal with evil by saying, I'm going to crush all evil this way. There's a terminology of crushing evil. But look at the manifestation of that terminology. Look at the way scripture deals with him with his two-edged sword. He deals and uses his two-edged sword the same way we are told to put on the armor of God. What is our weapon? What does our sword look like? Does it look like the carnal weaponry? No. You love your enemies. You pray for your enemies. You bless your enemies. Very different. If you look at how enemy warfare takes place, it is more difficult to restrain someone through love than to beat them down through the same venom that they use to defeat you. That's what you're seeing as the power of Christ. It's in scripture. We have to deal with that if we're going to be followers of Christ. Now, I'm not going to answer your question on how to defend yourself. You have to do that. I don't believe I have a, a, an ability to, to justify one side or the other to you and saying you have to follow this way. But these passages are still here. And you will have to deal with them. And I pray that it will help you in your walk with God. Here's the ultimate practical way that we can deal with right now. Because we're not persecuted. We're not having anyone that steps in here and says you cannot preach God's word. Or someone that's going to, to kill us if we are going to do so. But we're going to have people that will rebel against the word of God. People that may hate you for it. How do you deal with them? So right now, if you are here and you are an enemy of the cross, an enemy of Jesus Christ, you are an enemy in, in some various ways. One, it may be just by simply rejecting him as Lord and Savior and not succumbing to his will. Or it may be that you actually are an enemy from a physical standpoint that you destroy the people of God. I don't think anyone's here that is that, that fits that description. But they're in the world. We've, we, they make news from time to time. But God doesn't show you the same venom of justice in the name of what is good to you. 
he actually gave up his life. The father gave up his son so that you can live. That's an amazing kind of love that the world has never known. It's the kind of love that puts Satan in his place. It's the only way Satan could be ultimately destroyed. It was through love. And that's what he does for you. He loves you and he wants you to become a part of his kingdom. And here's the transformation. He takes you as an enemy who's known nothing but wrath and death. And he creates a new life in you. A new spirit in you. And with that, you now follow him and you live a completely different way. Where you don't act like the way of the world. You don't even act like some Christians who act like the way of the world. But you act like a true disciple and follower of Christ. Where you love and you create and you build up. That's what all these passages that were read from Jesus and his disciples taught. And that's what can happen to your life. It can be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And you may prove what is a good, acceptable, and perfect will of God as a result. So if you're here and that's the calling that you want to submit to, by all means, please, please do so. And brethren, if you need to change and turn your ways so that it reflects the way of God, by all means, we'll be happy to pray with you. Why not do that right now? So together we stand and sing.